Hello, welcome back to the Side of the Stronger podcast. As always, I'm Jordan Rose, and we are here to talk everything volleyball on and off the court. Speaking of resilience, uh, today we have Stephanie Allen, who is a DPT down in uh, the United States, and she is an expert on all things ACL rehab and recovery. So we take a deep dive into all things uh, ACL today. Steph goes into a lot of details uh, on rehab, prehab, the problems that we have with the typical rehab process, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So a lot of good takeaways from today. Let's dive into it. Hey, Steph. <laughs> um, how's it going? Good. It's going good. We've got both dogs here. Steph's got her dog. I've got Pepper. We're all set. If there's any dog interruptions, you just have to deal with it. It's okay. They're essential. They're essential. Yes. When there's lockdowns, we have grocery stores and dogs. That's that's it. So it is what it is. Um, so like I mentioned in the intro, uh, Steph is a Steph is one of our most well-qualified friends, and uh, she's an expert when it comes to ACL everything. So we're going to ask a whole bunch of questions. We're going to think about this podcast in three parts, if we get that far. Uh, what is the ACL and like why does it matter that it gets injured? Um, what can I do to decrease my risk of it getting injured or tearing? And then we're going to talk surgery and what to do after, and that's going to be a whole lot of information. So, Steph, who are you anyways? <laughs> Who am I? That's a good question. It's very philosophical. Um, I'm a huge nerd, uh, first and foremost. But no, I um, I am originally from New Jersey in the States, um, so no one judge me there. I went to school at the college, did their doctor to PT program, and then I swore I was never going to take any more tests or do any more school and promptly made a liar out of myself and did an ortho residency uh, in Ithaca. Great experience in some ways, others um, not exactly what I expected, but all a great experience in that um, I learned a lot. After that, I was still a little bit unsure of where I kind of fit in the PT world or where I wanted to kind of dive a little deeper or even just go. So I ended up being uh, pretty spontaneous, which is not in my nature and just deciding to do travel PT. Mm -hmm. So I did travel, travel physical therapy for almost two years. Um, And that is really where on the tail end of that experience, I had always been interested in ACL injuries because I sustained one myself in high school. Um, But I really started to see the what I was considering low standard of care for people who have sustained that injury and really started to dive deep into everything about it and why potentially it is so hard and why, you know, most insurance space, at least in the U S ortho sports oriented outpatient places just weren't seeming to get people to where they needed to be. Um, And so when I was done with travel PT, I ended up in Boston, I'm still here at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness. Um, and more recently, which I'm sure we'll talk about, started my own um, virtual coaching business for individuals who have had an ACL injury. Um, but really after that turning point, and then even in a great insurance-based place, still seeing the shortcomings um, of ACL rehab in and of itself, um, I kind of, at that point, 
dove real deep and, and never looked back. So I kind of just eat, sleep, dream, live ACL rehab um, in any way, shape or form and still do not claim to know even close to all of it. But I love to share as much as I have gathered thus far um, and maybe hopefully help even just a few people out there. There's a definite trend of people that come on here and maybe it's just a reflection of me, but everyone <laughs> says, you know, this is my thing. This is my specialty and I, I'm really passionate about it and I need to learn a lot more, which to me just says uh, you, you get the, the, the seal of approval from Jordan because you want, <laughs> you want to keep learning. And I, I don't know if anybody self-identifies as an, as an expert, I tend to run away a little bit, but uh, just it's a quick aside, quick aside for the folks out there. No, that was great. Um, we're, we're both in the, the Honey Badger project now and all that fun stuff that goes with that. But uh, it's so cool to see people niching down, as we call it, niching down, whatever, Frank. Um, and really, really dialing into one specific set of needs of one population because people need very specific help sometimes and uh, developing a service around that is huge. So, all right, let's get into this. Steph, what's an ACL? It's the thing in your knee, right? <laughs> yes. So we have, um, this is fun. This is like verbal anatomy. Yeah. Um, so you have your lower leg bone and your top leg bone. I don't know if people, do you have video for your podcast? Or yeah, not? we've got this on, this is on YouTube. If you're catching this on the podcast, this is a good plug. Catch us <laughs> on YouTube. You can see our smiling faces. Yeah. Um, and my very crude demonstration of, uh, the ACL with my hands. Um, so you have your bottom leg bone and your top leg bone. Um, bottom is tibia, top is um, your femur. And there's two crisscrossed ligaments inside the knee joint. So you have a couple on the outside, your MCL and your LCL, but the two that crisscross on the inside are your ACL, your anterior cruciate ligament and your PCL or your posterior cruciate ligament. The ACL is the one that is in charge of making sure that that bottom leg bone doesn't shift too far forward on the top leg bone. Um, and PCL doing vice, you know, the opposite. The implication with the ACL, and I'm not sure if this is where you were going next. So you can, oh, just go, 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 go. Not, um, is it seems to have a lot more influence on the structural stability of the knee joint itself. So basically how much that knee joint moves, how stable it is from a just anatomy, um, and biomechanics or alignment standpoint, Obviously, that's not taking into consideration all the muscles that are around it that also do that, um, which I know we'll get into. Um, so there seems to be a bigger impact on that just inherent stability of the knee joint itself when the ACL is injured versus PCL or any of the other ligaments. And it usually ends up being torn along with other structures um, more so than other ligaments as well. So it's one of those things where like there's a little bit of a domino effect often, not always, with ACL where other structures that also contribute to stability are also affected, even if they're not um, fully damaged. And so that's really why ACL ends up being, like why it matters if you actually tore your ACL, because a lot of times the, the general overall stability of the joint is more compromised with that particular injury. So for those of you uh, that are less anatomically uh, familiar than others, uh, it keeps your knee where it should be, front to back, more yeah. front than back. <laughs> um, so 
for those, again, for people that haven't torn their ACL or haven't had friends that have done it, um, how, how does it get injured specifically in like a, a sport context? So our volleyball viewership. Yeah. I think especially if a lot of, a lot of you are playing volleyball, um, you're probably actually in, not that it's uncommon in volleyball, but you might be in the like second tier of, of most common ways that it happens. Um, a lot of times it's field sports where you're running really, really fast, slowing down and then quickly changing direction. That would be the way that it's technically or quote unquote, non-contact injured. Obviously sometimes, you know, crap happens and somebody, somebody hits you from, from some direction. Oftentimes it's from outside to in, like outside of the knee inward, um, or it gets really hyperextended or forced straight. And those are two ways that impact wise, it tends to get torn that usually on field non-contact way is imagine yourself running down a soccer or football field and you are on defense. So you need to actually track somebody. You need to very quickly, slowly down, slow down. And then you need to push off of one leg to either avoid or to follow someone that slow down and then quick ramp up with a change of direction tends to be where that happens. And it happens as far as the, the ligament tearing or the ligament failing, because it can't necessarily tolerate that speed and that amount of, of load or force that's going through it. Um, and the problem is from a, from a risk or prevention standpoint is that that happens in like hundreds of milliseconds. It happens so fast. It's not like something that you can make sure that you're, you know, exactly cutting a certain way and that you'll avoid it. Sometimes you just have to pay attention to the sport, obviously. Um, so that is contact and field. And then the other one that might be a little more applicable to you guys is jump and land. So there is a uh, shit ton of jumping in volleyball. So, Who knew? Uh, and I think that the couple of, of times more recently that I've been working with volleyball players who have had this injury is they might land on another player's foot uh, oftentimes. And so then the, whether it's an ankle injury or a knee injury, sometimes um, they feed off of each other and that knee will sort of buckle inwards. And that is a mechanism of potential ACL injury. Um, and then sometimes there's, there's freak stuff that happens on actual jumps. I'm working with, I just finished working with someone who went to college and she actually, um, per her report, when she went to go jump up. Um, so again, all that kind of stuff is, is situational. Um, but that second mechanism that is fairly common that might be a little bit more applicable to you guys is the, the landing from a high jump. And oftentimes if you're landing a little more on one side or you have to land just based on contact in the air, you have to land on one foot. Um, then as you come down, depending on how you come down, if that knee buckles inward, um, that can be a potential mechanism as well. It's funny that you mentioned that. Um, my experience with well, my peer experience with it is my wife tore ACL in college playing. And it was not the way that volleyball players typically do it. She was, it was more in that kind of field sport setting where she was just in a practice. She was yeah. not even running, but jogging, changed direction. It just went gone. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's interesting and it can happen in so many different ways, right? Right. Cool. All right. So there's our framework. Let's, let's dive into some specifics here. Do we have any idea how frequently this happens? Is that, is that in the literature? 
so as of, I think it was like 2018, um, and who knows, the, the research is usually playing catch up a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, somewhere around 200,000 surgeries a year, at least in the U.S. So um, it's not not super rare. Definitely not rare, unfortunately. Um, but I think to me, what what I, how do I put this? what is the bigger issue is the re-injury rates. So yes, there's inherent risk in playing sport, whether you're male or female, or regardless of what sport, especially if there is any contact. Um, But being a physical therapist, it is on us to make sure that we are preparing people to go back to, or helping to prepare people to go back to their sport ideally with this injury stronger than they were prior because something wasn't um, Up to tolerating enough of, yeah. So something, you know, that there's, I fully, fully believe that, you know, this isn't the only injury, but a very glaring example of an injury that you have to be able to not just get your one leg as strong as the other one. You need to get both and your entire body and being like mindset and everything stronger than you were prior. Um, and so that I think is the, is the bigger issue and probably where I know more of the numbers, just because I feel like that is um, where my mind focuses a little bit more. And that number sucks. That one's about one in four, Ooh. about 25% around re re-injury rate. That's killer. Okay. We're going to, we're going to go into that deep. Just, just <laughs> wait, just it's, it's coming. It's okay. coming. I got, I've, I have one more question on this, on this first topic before we move on. Huh. So when I was coming up uh, in the volleyball setting, um, ACL risk was perceived to be a lot higher in women than men. Um, I'm sure you can speak a lot on this. My my main questions are, is it true? And if it is true, is it a genetic thing? I've heard laxity being thrown around there for ligaments. Is it educate us, Steph? Oh, you just opened a can of worms, Jordan. That's Um, what I do. You should hear me and Jared go. We just, yeah. (laughs) I love it. Um, No, I think I'm, this isn't a, I don't want to make this seem like a, like a rant um, because it is something that I'm, I'm very, (laughs) the, the answer is it is true. There is considerably more injuries. I don't exactly remember the differential. Um, I'd have to pull that up, but it is more common in females, I I have personally dove down the hormonal ligament laxity, uh, menstrual cycle effect rabbit hole, and that research is pretty meh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem to hold up to um, maybe some of the theories that are tied to it, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously my bias being you know inherently a feminist, I kind of liked that because I did. I, I thought for a little while that made it made sense to me that if sure. there are tens of times where hormonally we may be a little bit more lax um, and that evolutionarily that's, you know, that happens for childbearing to occur, like that made sense to me. But I went down that expecting to find something and didn't. So, and I'm always open to being proven wrong. And that was actually one that I was okay with being proven wrong because then that would feed into the fact that either maybe females have to train differently, that maybe they need to, 
not be competing at highest level during certain times of every month. And to me, that's like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, nah. Especially at higher levels, it's not feasible. So, so the, as far as, um, hormonally, that's at least it, based on what I know right now, that's not really, um, it's not a lot of ground to stand on there. And um, just, sorry, if I can cut for two seconds, just mm-hmm. for the people that are again, not anatomically, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll no, you're good. That. <laughs> that aren't quite as nerded out as we are. When we're talking laxity, we're talking about how how pliable and how stretchy your ligaments can be. And the idea is during certain times of the month, there's certain hormones that affect the elasticity of your ligaments. And the idea was, okay, well, if if there's more relaxation, maybe we're more prone to tearing those ligaments at those times. Continue your rant. Thank you, Jordan. Um, genetics is an interesting one. There, again, there's not really a a jury out on it, but there does seem to be a correlation, if you will, to, um, and I'm sure other physios or, or even people with sustained injury, you might have a sister or a mom or, you know, even a brother, um, who has had that injury. That one is, I haven't dove as deep down the rabbit hole. Um, but that is still from what I have gathered, it is a potential correlation, but not something that is enough of a significant, uh, tie that it would change either risk reduction or prehab or rehab practices at this point. So it can be a piece, but I think what will also probably be deduced from this podcast is that there's a lot of freaking pieces (laughs) to got a uh, list of like eight here to talk about. Yeah. There's, there's so many that, um, we're playing the priorities game, Genetics and hormones are probably a little lower on that um, list of attention to be diverted to. And it's interesting, the the conversation around uh, male versus female risk. I I often kind of get caught up with this idea of, is it more from a training perspective? And we'll talk about strengths and imbalances and weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. But just for my anecdote, uh, again, my wife tore ACL, and of her team, I think a third of them did. Uh, for the people that she played with in high school with club, a third or so went on to play college and and tour. And I asked her what her training looked like in high school, and it was a whole bunch of pure, basically quad work. And I, I get curious, and again, we'll dive into this, and you'll correct me for everything I'm wrong on, but is it? tied to this idea of like, oh, women shouldn't do like things like deadlifts and hamstring work and glute specific work. And it's just, it's in my mind. So there's my framework going into this to this next section. So let's talk risk reduction. And just for the folks at home, why do we say risk reduction and not injury prevention? And Steph, maybe you can for it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm very averse to prevention just because I feel like it sets the wrong expectations if if I were to say that. So again, there's just inherent risk in sport um and any pretty much any injury you look at the highest risk of that injury is having had that injury in the past. Mm-hmm. So obviously re-injury rates especially for something like I mean think about how many people you know who have sprained their ankle 12 times over the course of their career. Yeah. Like it just, I mean, especially in volleyball too. I feel like that is the probably the second most frequent um, ailment that I get or, or I see volleyball players with. Um, I don't know if that's similar for you. Oh yeah. 
but um but yes it's risk reduction in the sense of if we're talking about you know solely just research the one things that have really or the one thing that has really been a mainstay in being a correlation of people who had did not have a recurrence of injury or did not have other knee issues post ACL rehab, whether most of the research is on, they had surgical repair or reconstruction. Um, so those who have had the surgery are, uh, strength. It's their, it's their quad What's, what's called in the research limb symmetry index index, which just means that the surgery side, that the quads, your front thigh muscles are at least 90% as strong as the other side. Um, and I know that seems like a pretty narrow focus, but it's usually a proxy of just how generally strong that person is per their body weight in general. So that would include things like you were saying, glute hamstring strength, lateral hip strength, trunk strength. Um, I think the other thing that gets, I don't know if I'm straying too far. So you tell me, but I think the other thing that gets a little demonized, especially with injury rates and, and the rates for females is their core strength and their hip width. Mm-hmm. So there's two things also, if we were to backtrack a little bit and, and I can report on that in the research doesn't hold up is the anatomy reason or the way you're built reason for, for having this injury or being predisposed um, overall strength. Yes. I feel like that is probably the biggest piece as far as why females may be a little bit more predisposed. And then we'll get into that a little bit more here in a little bit, but the, uh, the anatomy piece or the, or the, how you're built or, or where your hips are, um, Q angle and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is another one that is, that, that doesn't, doesn't hold up well. Um, so I'm sorry, your original question, I strayed. So just read it. <laughs> so well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't start with a specific enough question. See, it's my fault. Don't blame stuff. <laughs> um, let's, let's give it a specific question. So we're talking under the umbrella of risk reduction. Now we've talked about why we say risk reduction as opposed to, um, uh, prevention. So let's start with what are some of the myths out there when it comes to ACL uh, tear risk reduction that maybe don't hold as much water as we talked, as they might seem like they do. And you talked about things like hip angle and all that stuff. So let's get, let's keep going down there. Yeah. So obviously people can't change their anatomy, but I think a lot of the, or, or one of the big selling points for um, injury prevention programs, because there are some contexts in which I have to use the word prevention because it is in the research and it is in the marketing. There's a lot of marketing, whether it's other physios or whether it's strength coaches, um, fitness professionals that market their basically like strength, agility. Um, you'll see the words like neuromuscular control or training or balance training. Um, they market that as injury prevention. Um, we already know from the discussion that you can't actually prevent anything, but I think one of the bigger myths is, well, there's two, there's two big ones. One is that if you increase core and hip strength that you can ideally either reduce risk or, or prevent injury. Um, overall strength is part of it, but 
to narrow it to hip and core strength just like on its own is not quite seeing the whole picture. Um, and then the other big thing that's often marketed in prevention programs is this um, single leg or neuromuscular control. You may see things like doing single leg tasks on like a, a pad or a BOSU ball or trying to do um, things where your, your eyes are closed. And again, I still do some of that stuff, um, I think just potentially for some different reasons. But just being able to be a little more, quote unquote, what might make sense to, to you guys is like increasing coordination or what people might call like your brain muscle connection. Um, that also in and of itself is not necessarily going to prevent you from having the injury. Components of that can be part of your like overall risk reduction planning. But I think those two things like hip and core strength and then being weaker in females and also improving that kind of single leg balance slash neuromuscular control programs. Um, those are two things that are sold a lot that don't, in, in my opinion, um, really hold up too well when you were talking about actual prevention. So correct me if I'm wrong here. I just want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about and then why it doesn't really hold up. Um, for the, the single leg and the core and hip work, is the narrative, okay, you're going to be in these specific positions, so we need to gain coordination and balance in these positions, because otherwise, if you don't have control, then you're going to have these tears. Yeah, so I think it. I think that's a really good point, Jordan, that it isn't that those things are bad, because if you look at a program that I have for an ACL athlete, there's going to be some single leg stuff. I'm not going to be using BOSUs or pads. That's another discussion, but things like moving your head around, being able to pay attention to other things while you're moving or doing something on one foot that you're going to have to do on the court or the field or whatever it is. Um, but it's more so the attachment or the narrative to like, if you're able to do these things, then once you're in that position on the field, you are not going to tear it. And the issue with that is that there's so much inherent variability, variability of movement in sport. And there should be, that just because you can do it in a controlled manner, doing your injury prevention program without other contextual factors of, you know, temperature, fans, co like people, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. Um, it just, that's the part that doesn't hold up for me. So it, again, not necessarily that those types of things are bad to do. Trunk and core strength and single leg control, all good things can be part of a, a really good prehab or rehab program. Um, but when you pull them over into the bucket of, or under the umbrella of this is going to prevent you from an injury. That's where I have a problem. Got it. So it's not the components. It's just the messaging around them. Yeah. Cool. So what actually helps? Bum, bum, bum. I will, I will preface this again by just reminding people that I don't have all of the answers. Um, but I've been practicing for almost 10 years now, which is also crazy to say. Um, <laughs> I have incredible mentors. I've read a lot. I've screwed up a lot of things, learned the hard way. Um, so from all that, what I have been able to deduce is that general strength, which tends to be less in females, is the one at least I would call like modifiable factor or the one of the things that we can control both as the athlete and or the coach that can make the biggest difference. 
obviously within that, I realize that's vague. So things like a focus on quad strength in particular, but also not ignoring your whole, what we would call posterior chain, like your glutes, hips, hamstrings in particular, um, and consistent progressive overload strengthening, not just body weight, not just what a lot of times is seen or referred to as cross training, like yoga or Pilates or burpees, just endless burpees. or yeah. Or like hit workouts again, always a place for those. They're fun. But when you're talking about actually having for those structures that you call on so hard for things like soccer, volleyball, basketball, football, and other potentially contact sports, um, they need to have an additional type of what I would call resilience or capacity to be able to do that at a high level. And think about how many days a week these individuals, like young athletes and, and professional athletes are doing this stuff. It's probably six or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So, and, and minimal and probably not the most efficient recovery, especially if you're talking about a high school or college level, which is mostly where, where I work. And it's because they also have classes and other stuff going on totally understandable. So if there's one thing that I know as, as the coach and as a, an ideal, you know, physio or in influence on this person, this individual, it's going to be getting them super strong. Love it. Um, and okay. So from a, a two things, from a perspective of somebody that's completely unfamiliar to resistance training, they only know volleyball, yep. volleyball's life. Um, what, what did that look, what would that look like in a gym setting? Like, what are some examples of exercises that could be progressively overloaded? And maybe in this case, we keep it simple as saying like adding weight over time. Yep. Yeah. So things like, I also used to not be a huge proponent of machines, like machines mm-hmm. in the gym. And I have very much so recoiled myself on that for things like, a knee extension, a hamstring curl, you can actually keep track of the weight over. Who knew? You'd be surprised. Like it's, it's, it's actually kind of fun to say, you know, like I could do 15 pounds, single leg knee extension. Um, or like, you know, the one that basically the machine you sit on and you kick out your knee against the little pad. And then the hamstring one is either you pull back or you lay on your belly and pull your feet up. Like those things are at minimum things that, you know, are, uh, are going to target two of the muscle groups, your quads and your hamstrings, the front and back thigh muscles, they are super important in general for knee health. And if you didn't, if you had access to nothing else, those would be great. Um, the other things that I think are really important for males and females, especially playing dynamic sports like that are what we would call like compound movements. So a squat or a deadlift, ideally getting to a point where you can progress past like a dumbbell or a kettlebell because they start to get awkward at certain weights mm-hmm. to, to hold. So something like, even if it's a training bar, um, you know, where, so it's not a bar that's 45 pounds and adding that, but you can really basically load your skeleton better and the muscles and more evenly with, with things like a barbell. Um, I don't know if we'll end up getting, getting into this at all, but just even the psychological, uh, maybe empowerment that occurs with being able to know your way around a gym and know your way around the barbell male and female, just usually more so females, um, is, is huge. So from a strength component, you know, double leg or single leg squat or deadlift, knee extension, hamstring curls. If you, uh, if you did nothing else, but add that into, you know, if that was all you had access to, then you would be doing more than the minimum 
than and and more than what a lot of other people um, are currently doing for things like risk reduction or longevity in sport. We so well, filmed this morning, coming out before this one, so you guys have already watched it. Of course, uh, we just talked to Taylor and Dan, like Alan Flanick, um, about right. all that kind of stuff on oh, resilience. Awesome. And, yeah, it was awesome. Love so. Taylor. Take those lessons, implement them here, folks. Um, we said squats and deadlifts, so I, my job's done. Thanks for coming on. That was great. Um, <laughs> go to your squats and deadlifts, maybe some lunges. You'll be golden. No, no, that's great. Um, I, I think the, the, the lesson about machines is important because some people that, you know, they, they've not torn their ACL yet, but they're nervous about it and they want to do something about it but hey maybe they can't hire a coach maybe they're not comfortable with a barbell maybe their gym doesn't have access to barbells maybe they work at a plant fitness or something um it's good to know that doing those those machine exercises um as long as you kind of get the muscle groups that are important um and then some unilateral work will still go a long way right as much as i want everyone to back squat and conventional deadlift it's okay it's okay well i will also put a little plug in there as well for um, back squats and, and or front squats, but mostly back squats and, and deadlifts is from a bone health perspective, mm -hmm. particularly for females. Um, you reach your peak bone density around, I think between 19 and 21 or 23, which is a lot younger than I realized. I just learned that this past year. And after that, bone mineral stores are basically the strength of your bones starts to go down. So for things, and, and the one thing thus far that has been shown to be a little bit more ideal for stimulating bone growth and, and strength of bones is what's called axial loading, which is straight up and down loading against gravity. So that means a back squat versus a goblet squat where you're holding it in front of you, you know, something literally sitting on your skeleton. Your spine, yeah. Versus, yes, your spine in particular um, versus holding the weight in front of you will actually promote more bone growth. So we're talking, I know that's a little bit even more longevity, but just a little plug for back squats for you. Well, it turns out that people care about other injuries outside <laughs> ACL sometimes too. No, it's, it, it's great. Um, I think people often hear spine loading and back loading and they think, oh no, I need to protect my spine. I'm going down a rabbit hole. I can feel it. No, we're not, we're not going there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Load your spine folks. That's all. Yeah. Another time. Um, another time, another podcast, another professional or stuff, you know, so good. let um, in the risk reduction standpoint. So we, we talked about strength. We talked about some of the, the neuromuscular control, some balance stuff. What about um, plyometrics and, or some landing mechanic work? Yeah, that's a good point. So I know I spoke about, sort of one of the mechanisms being that that knee caving in position or knees buckling inward. And this has gotten a lot of flack and the pendulum has swung back and forth a bunch of times about whether you should train the valgus position, which is that knees sort of buckling inward position. And if that is bad, if somebody does that. And again, I feel like I've been on both ends of the spectrum and usually end up coming back somewhere towards the middle. So what I will, what I will say on that is there is decent research to support that individuals who, if they were to do a, a depth drop jump, so one where you will 
jump off of a low box, like maybe eight to 12 inch box. And then as soon as you hit the ground, you're supposed to jump right back up and jump as high as you can. Um, mechanics with that did show a correlation between those who might have a little bit more of an aggressive like knees inward approach to creating the force to jump back up. If that was the, the way that they did it, then they tended to be individuals who either did or would go on to have an ACL injury. Now that gets extrapolated a little bit too much, I think, because if you look at that particular work, um, for those that don't enjoy research, I will sort of recap it for you. It was only the individuals who really had like a, they were scored on a test of literally like almost how bad it was, how bad their jump was. Um, and again, I even hate saying that word because other implications, but only the ones that seemed to be on the very high end of the spectrum of really knees inward. And that was their way of, of being able to gain enough strength and force to jump high. It was just that subset of the population that tended to be um, correlated with or potentially at a higher risk for the injury. So I know we're talking about plyometrics. Don't worry. No, it's <laughs> like, good. No, no, they, they, they go when, together, obviously. Ply, yeah, plyometrics I see is like if I were to keep things simple as jump and land training. Yes. Could be, yeah. And, and again, there's so much of plyometrics in volleyball that I think it is worth you know, I think that is definitely a sport that jump and land training could be very, um, could have a lot of utility. So it doesn't mean that you're just doing a ton of depth drop jumps and making sure that your knees stay out versus in that can definitely be part of it. But things like drop lands, single drop lands and incorporating some of the, that into like higher level or dynamic stuff can, can be hugely helpful. I think the other thing that we sometimes lose sight of is that if the in individual is also very strong, then they tend to demonstrate some more like wider base, stable jump and land positions. So I think that they mesh a little bit more than we think. It's not like, okay, you need to do this separate, you know, learn how to jump correctly and this separate strength. And they're going to take care of two different things. They very much so marry well together yep. and if people, the last part I'll say on that is if people do have their knees come in a little bit when they land to prepare to jump back up, that's actually within normal. And yeah. each of it should be like, if you looked at anybody's slow-mo, even some of the highest level athletes, sometimes in order to actually generate and create enough force to jump back up high, you have to cave in a little bit. And it's more of like a nerdy there's certain um, stretch shortening cycles that happen when you, when you jump and land quickly. And sometimes you almost have to like wind yourself up at a soft tissue level. So don't even worry about that part, but sometimes it, you almost, it's almost required a little bit to have the knees come in in order to jump really high. And if it makes the difference between getting to that spike or, you know what I mean? Like that, we're all going to do it. You know, you're going to do it. Exactly. So, um, just to just to put that little caveat in. Yeah, no, it's it's good. The first time I recorded myself jumping when I was starting to actually be curious about it, I'm like, what is that? I right? looked at my knees and it's just like, I didn't know I did that. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem? Should I be scared? And you know, looking into all of clinical athlete and all that <laughs> stuff, it's like, oh, this is normal. I'm not a freak. We're good. Yeah. Narrative um, sway people, and it it doesn't mean that oh, there's yeah. not any truth to it because I do think that 
you know, mm-hmm. obviously aggressive valgus is, is definitely something to potentially along with straightening or strengthening to help maybe quote unquote coach out of a little bit or to optimize the movement a little bit, but it also isn't a death sentence. Yeah. You talked about how the, the, the meshing between plyometrics and strength work. And I think that's important. And the simplest thing I can kind of describe to people is when we squat, we cue you to get your knees out. And if not that, you know, a little bit of algus is the end of the world, but to me, a squat is almost the biggest regression of a landing exercise, just because you need to have, it's a setting in which you are not um, dropping. Like there's no ballistic component. So it's nice and controlled and you get an opportunity to feel knees out. So then we can start with that and then layer on more and more and more to the point where we get to landing mechanics and plyometrics. And you already know that pattern. It's different, obviously, because it's, you know, it's totally different setting, but you have some history and some exposure to that, which is lovely. Okay. Actually, I want to touch on one more thing on risk reduction. Two more things. It's a lie. There's more (laughs) things. Um, Hot topic. The big I word imbalances. Everyone always likes to talk about their imbalances and how important they are. And I kind of cringe a little bit because I consume your guys' content. Um, and for the for the layman's terms out there, this idea of imbalances being that around the knee, there are multiple structures and muscles that support it. And if one side is much stronger or one side is much weaker, then there's going to be an imbalance of forces on that structure and that's going to predispose you to injury. Steph, tell us why it's right or wrong. <laughs> well, actually, again, I'm not going to say that it's fully wrong because I think in the right context and with the right narrative, it actually, some of it holds up, right? Like we, we look, one of the main things we look at is how strong one quad muscle group is compared to the other one. Okay. There's definite implications. I think the, the bigger issue I have is when you're talking about the, the people who are under the impression that even prior to injury, like maybe they don't have injury, maybe they just have a little bit of, let's say, let's say a little back pain. Cause I think that sometimes that happens, especially even in jumping sports and when there's a lot of extension or like when you're almost arching your back a lot to, to jump high or, and, or land or, or move, um, they are sometimes told, or they do a little bit of research and feel as though maybe they're, the issue is that their hip flexors are really, really tight. And so it's pulling their pelvis or their hips basically forward and then making them arch their back. And then that's why they have pain. The one disclaimer with any of those types of explanations, if you will, is a, I understand because it totally makes sense. If you look at Google and you look at where those muscles are and you look what happens to the muscles when they might be tight, hundred percent makes sense. So it's nobody's fault for feeling like, Oh, this is definitely why I have pain. The other side of that is that pain and or injury risk are very, very poorly correlated with things like muscle length and uh, tightness and those sort of things. It can definitely be linked to strength, which again, in this particular injury um, or risk for injury is, is the thing. But I think that my biggest switch has been from using instead of using the word imbalance, because that just implies that something is out of balance and or inherently wrong, um, going more towards 
I have more movement a little bit on this side, or I have a little bit more strength on this side than the other. And if for that particular person, it may be more ideal or more efficient for either their sport or for decreasing their potential risk of a certain injury, then yeah, that's something we can, you know, very much so work on evening out. So it's not inherently wrong is the, is the answer to the question. I just think that it, that when it's either linked to directly to an injury risk or directly to pain, that it gets a little gray, that it doesn't always necessarily, it's, it's not one-to-one in that sense. Yeah. Especially as like a predictive thing. Cause the idea is like, okay, if I took all these people and this person, I take their imbalance of hamstring to quad. Cause that's, you know, that's something I hear a lot. You can predict who's going to get hurt. Yeah. The other, the other example that I think helps people is something like a, would you consider a baseball pitcher's shoulder range of motion to be an imbalance that is going to put him at risk for injury? Some would say yes, in the sense of pitchers tend to have more injuries, right? But again, you're doing a lot of one thing repetitively, but if they didn't have that extra rotation at their shoulder on their pitch arm, would they be as good of a pitcher? And would you change that? Or a soccer player who is you know, if you talk to anybody who plays soccer, they have a dominant leg. If you were to strength test them prior to any injury, not having any pain, they're probably going to test not exactly at 90 or hundred percent. One side's going to probably be like 80% of the other one mm-hmm. and they won't ever tear their ACL. Yeah. So that's why I don't love necessarily the word imbalance. There's definitely some discrepancies side to side that I feel like sometimes depending on your sport could be optimized. Um, I just don't love the word imbalance just because psychologically it implies that something is out of whack, out of balance and needs to be fixed. Yeah. Big F word. Yeah. All right. (laughs) That was a lot on risk reduction. I loved it. It's wonderful. We went through so many rabbit holes. It's awesome. All right. Let's, let's, let's get Steph a bit angry here. Uh (laughs) Let's talk surgery and rehab following surgery. So again, layman's terms, your ACL tears either partially or fully. The idea is that we need to go in and repair that ligament. Uh, we don't need to get into the, the types too much or anything like that. You can take it from your hamstring, you can take it from your quad. You can do a bunch of different stuff. Um, here, here's the starting question. Do they always need to be fixed? No. Bum, bum, bum. But Steph, my knee, if I don't have that ligament, how is it going to not shift forward? Because we just talked know, about the I beginning. Finished, I just finished telling everyone that it has such implication for the stability of the knee. Um, but now I feel like, and you're doing a very good job with this, Jordan, that I, I, I sort of prefaced this a little bit by saying that there are a lot of muscles around that also do a lot of work on the stability front. So... Here's the spark notes of if if I were to be counseling all of you listening to this and you are somebody who you like to run and lift, you are not necessarily going back to a elite or high level competitive cutting and pivoting sport. And your knee seems to actually be tolerating this injury pretty well. It's not really super swollen after a couple of weeks. You can move in almost full range. Your quad is still working pretty well. Um, 
if you're in that particular situation, you may fall under the umbrella of what we would call doing really well with conservative treatment or just a really solid rehab program followed by a fairly targeted strength and conditioning routine after that. So in general, if someone comes to me and they ask me whether or not they need surgery, there's three main things. It's how is your knee behaving over the course of that first two to four weeks? Like does swelling come down pretty quickly? Is it seeming as though it is not super bothered by the fact that <laughs> you know, you no longer have an ACL because some people's bodies really react negatively and they have a ton of swelling and a ton of pain and their range is restricted. Their quad is sleepy sleeping and it's not a great situation. They probably would benefit from some added stability and, and the traditional PT route. So that's the first piece. How is it reacting to it? What are their goals as far as what level of activity? And three, are they getting a lot of what I call like instability or giving out episodes. So if somebody's knee is tolerating it pretty well, they don't have crazy um, dynamic sport goals and they actually aren't getting a lot of, you know, when they're walking, the knee kind of just like, like they're, yeah, they, they don't, it's not buckling on them on stairs or walking. Um, you may, I, I, to that person, I would say, even if you end up getting surgery, I would try a good three months of, a solid rehab program with a professional who works with this injury a lot and then reevaluate where you're at because the recovery from surgery is a huge commitment mentally, physically there. It rarely is like a very straight linear, like you just progress for that whole first nine to 12 months. There's, even if they're minor, there's usually some hiccups and some setbacks and they test you. And, you know, I love going through that process with people, but I am never going to lie to someone and say that it's easy. Um, so if your body is seemingly having a fairly easy time with it and you're not going to demand mo anything crazy from it, as far as, you know, activity. And even that is a caveat because I have people who I've worked with who have torn it and went back to skiing. Yeah, that, that was going to be my question because um, yeah. a lot of our audience is going to be um, mid to high tier right. recreational volleyball players, right? Yep. So does that quantify as you should probably get it fixed or is it more towards the eh, spectrum? Because obviously there's a lot of cutting, jumping. Yep. Yeah, I, I'll be entirely honest with you guys. You're probably maybe more of like, you know, 70 to 80% of you would definitely benefit from it. Sure. Um it is not impossible to play volleyball with either a partial or a full tear eventually. I think the biggest piece, to be fully honest, that that sways people towards surgery, at least right now, based on what we know and what um, society's view of this injury and rehab is, is that it's just so mentally challenging for them to yeah. go back to they're scared. It's and I and I get it. You know, like it's, it's, there's always that question mark in people's minds, whether it's warranted or not based on the, the PT's point of view, like people can be crushing it and you'd be so confident in them, but they need to be confident internally. And that ends up sometimes eating at people enough that they're like, I just want to get the surgery so that I know from that structural standpoint that Recovered. my knee is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Cool. It's good to be, it's good to be fully blunt and honest. Like I think ex setting expectations is huge, obviously like things, you know, um, okay. I want to get into some details here. 
without, you know, spending three hours because we could. Um, <laughs> and we will. Don't you test us. We will. No. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned two different timelines. You mentioned that two to three months originally, and then you said the nine to 12 months. What's a typical, uh, I know there's no average, but average, if you got ACL reconstruction and you're trying to get back to sport, what kind of expectations should you be setting in terms of actual return to sport? And what does that look like leading up to that point? Yes. Not in <clears throat> bubbles. Um, because I know that there's a lot of people who may know somebody who went back at like five or six months, but that would be my wife. And I'm not yeah. sure how she did it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I played in real basketball and was running and lifting probably at like five months. Um, definitely not what I would do now, <laughs> obviously. Um, but anyway, you, I don't, I don't care whether you are, you know, Saquon Barkley, who for people who don't know, like an NFL player in the US or or not, or just like, you know, a high school varsity volleyball player. I am not comfortable sending people back before nine months. Now, that too is a spectrum. There's some people that aren't ready till closer to a year based on what they're exhibiting from a like criteria or milestone standpoint, mm -hmm. which again, not details we have to get into. But if I were to simplify it, as best I can, aside from the amount of work and time it takes to, like we alluded to before, getting your entire being stronger and, and more ready than you were prior to the injury, even aside from that, there's healing of the graft itself occurring for at least one to two years. And again, it doesn't mean at nine months, if you go back full, that you're going to, that you're going to retear. It just means that everybody is slightly different. And based on what we know right now, as far as the requirements of strength, mental capacity, uh, reconditioning from even just cardiovascular standpoint, um, and a slow graded re-exposure to first like modified practice, then modified non-contact practice for a certain amount of time, then um, full practice, but restricted time, then full practice to do a little bit more restricted time, then game restricted time, like that whole process that probably starts at around eight or nine months, that takes another two to three months, probably right. if you're doing it right. So that's where the timeline of anywhere between nine and 12 months comes from. Um, even if you are someone who has had zero hiccups and you're feeling good, you're looking good, strength tests look pretty good. I don't feel personally comfortable as being the coach or the PT or ethical sending, giving my blessing before nine months, just yep. based on what I know. Cool. I appreciate that. That's good. Um, so once you hit that kind of, you talked about some specific tests that you did there. What is, let's say in a less evidence-based clinic that isn't as diligent as they should be. Um, what typically happens when somebody goes through ACL surgery and they, they get the typical physio? Um, what's that look like? Yeah. I'm, this is the part that probably gets me the most mad. Here comes the but, steam. <laughs> and I think and I don't even actually, I'm not blaming anyone or anything. I think that where, I think the biggest culprit, at least here is 
how insurance runs in our country. Mm. So it's all mostly private or if you do it's it's private insurance then there's a billion and one different plans from a bunch of different companies there and then if it's federally based your benefits or your coverage for things like physio are kind of a crapshoot so let's say you do even have someone who regularly works with acl injury maybe not even necessarily specializes but at their clinic sees most of the ACL cases. Um, what often happens is around three or four months, you might be lucky to get five or six, um, insurance gets cut off. And if the individual you're working with or the clinician you're working with isn't able to instruct you or maybe influence a ongoing plan or get you in touch with a strength coach who can. So that's, that's another piece too, that I feel like needs to change if insurance is, and it's just having relationships with good strength coaches in your area as well, where you can kind of refer people if and when insurance runs out. Um, but again, that's another conversation. So oftentimes what happens is you will go through like the first really, you'll get your strength base if things go well. And I feel like that's what happens in that first three or four months after the early phase stuff. And then oftentimes PT will drop off. Um, so in order to avoid that, doing some research early on in your recovery is huge because a lot of times it's just the fact that whether places don't have someone who specializes or is super qualified and or insurance runs out, those are usually the two biggest things that ends up in a, what I would call incomplete rehab process. Um, and that is more what I feel like has an implication in the re-injury rates is that it's either insufficient or it's incomplete. So it's either cut short somehow, or even the time that you have had in rehab, let's say it was a sufficient six to nine months and you're really lucky. It just ends up being not enough. Um, so that paints not a super pretty picture <laughs> because there are pockets of areas and clinicians that do do this really well. Um, but more often than not, the cases that you are sort of left to your own devices at around between like, I would say four to six months. Which is still a long time to fill in the gaps and a lot of outcomes that should be hit in population that let's be honest, doesn't train for the most part. Right. And that is also a population that I know I would have fallen into at that age. Mm -hmm. It's like, how are you able to, who within that population has the discipline and motivation and like time management skills to be able to like seek out someone, follow a program, do all their homework. Half the kids that I have in high school are staying up to like two in the morning already, like yep. doing what they need to do outside of their sport. And I'm like, how, how can I ethically add anything to the plate? Yeah. <laughs> so again, a lot of pieces go into it. Um, but that is sort of the current situation. And I'll be honest, I think that's the crux of re-injury outside of the re-injury rate for, for females, yep. which I know again could probably be its own, own podcast. I have my bias there, um, but I'll let you 
<laughs> let you ask the questions. Go ahead. No, no, no. Hey, Steph, what's your bias there? <laughs> well, I actually, I, I couldn't, I don't know what you do show note wise, but there's a, there's a fairly short paper that has super, super de duperly, if that's the word, influenced my, um, it is now. <laughs> my, or, or maybe gave some of my biases a ground to stand on, which is always fun to find. Confirmation um, bias. But Joanne Parsons is someone who's done a lot of work in the, the societal influence of this injury on females. Um, and she obviously does an incredibly, she incredibly eloquently puts the findings, but my bias has always been that it isn't just that girls strength less like, or strength train less women and girls, but in general, from the time that we are born, there are implicit and explicit nudges towards things that we should and shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to wrestle with the boys when they play outside. We are not supposed to step foot in that high school weight room. Again, a lot of times it's not even said out loud. It's just felt and done. Um, so again, those are just two examples. And, and like I said, Joanne does a wonderful job of recapping what they found. Um, but I think it's way beyond just the fact that at around the adolescent age, like at around between 11 and 13, boys are encouraged to supplement their sport with lifting. And that's a, you know, camaraderie inducing and team building um, and confidence building thing that boys do mm-hmm. traditionally. Not, no, yeah, yeah. Um, not even an instrument the moment. You're an instrument the moment. We are all inclusive. <laughs> love that. that right there. Um, but it is, it's a big thing that I don't know if it's really something that can be totally undone, but I think part of what I hope to be able to do before I leave this world is potentially just expose more people to the fact that I don't even know if we're asking the right questions mm. with this injury. Like maybe maybe it's not even again what we have control over our things like the strength so obviously i i measure strength with a force gauge and i do the you know the things that i feel like we at least in the rehab setting are are uh, controllables like things we have control over obviously i do that but i definitely i fluctuate between also having some of these existential thoughts of like you know for this particular injury and some that are this is just the most glaring example, but some that also other females are maybe more predisposed to the, the questions we're asking might be like missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. Um, We're worried about like hamstring to quad ratio when not enough are just squatting or deadlifting because deadlifting is for the guys. It's like, "Mm." so that's, that's a little seed I'll plant just because it's definitely, uh, something I've been diving a little bit more into and something that actually in my mind might have a little bit more traction. I don't have any answers as to how we, how we change things at a societal level other than potentially just um, talking more about it. Yeah. I I think those conversations are starting to happen, which is excellent. They need to happen a lot more. And I mean, like the, the, the bubbles that we live in are wonderful and it's like, Oh yeah, we, we all squat and we all, uh, we all encourage women to go to the gym and then you get outside of our 1% bubble. And it's like, uh-oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me yeah. back in. <laughs> I don't want the real world. Exactly. So no, it's good. 
Okay. L last question on the surgery. Cool. Once you've been cleared, let's say somebody leaves your practice, they've been working for you for 12 to 14 months and you know, you've got them to the point where they're self-sufficient. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that's how it works, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, are there any concerns that somebody should, or any concerns that people should be aware of in terms of re-injury, um, aside from staying strong and staying fit and doing these, these things that we've talked about? I try to keep that very simple with people because oftentimes, and again, my bias is that the psychological impact is just as big, if not bigger than sometimes the physical impact, sure. even for the people that don't necessarily want to recognize it. Yeah. And are and are demonstrating some pretty pretty strong um, psychological adaptations to it, but I try to keep it very simple in the sense of you know at that point if they've been training with me, and again I also have to preface if I'm lucky enough to work with someone for a year, um, I am not they're not coming in every week probably at a certain point I'm yeah. mostly more of like a coach uh, you know they there's they should be my you know I didn't do my job if by six months, they can't pretty much train on their own with yeah. some guidance and progressions from me occasionally. Um, I don't think that's even necessarily ethical from a, um, insurance standpoint to have them be coming in two or three times a week, that whole time. Which is anyway, funny because like the other end of the physio chiro spectrum is you need to come see me twice a week for the rest of your life. Right. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm a black sheep in, in some ways, but I mean, my, I know I'm not the only one that thinks that way too, but anyway, that being said, you know, that ties into the fact that by the time they are quote unquote done with me, um, we will have had an explicit conversation about which things need to be kept into um, or remain staples in their strength program. And it is going to be things like squatting, deadlifting, knee extensions, hamstring curls. And you know what? A piece that often goes untalked about is, especially at the high school and collegiate level, is we have some of the basic conversations around like volume management and recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think what takes definitely more than a year for most people is we talk about the strength of that side, the strength of that quad, that hamstring, that leg in general, what we forget about is that it gets tired quicker for a long time. Sure. It's they, like muscles, body, but they have endurance also. It's not just like your lungs and your heart that have endurance. So I think that planting the seed and and explaining a little bit more about what that actually means, meaning like, you know, on your off day of practice, maybe you don't go for a four mile run, maybe go for a walk run, maybe go for a walk, but like, you know, not necessarily do nothing. You can have active recovery, but maybe sleep. God yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, that's a, that's a big thing, especially for um, female athletes and something that I wish someone told me because I did not do nice things to my body when I was younger, as far as in that department, as far as fueling and resting. And, um, so I, I really keep it simple in the sense of they should know exactly what things should remain in their program. And they should also know how to rest and recover when they need to. And just to be clear for everyone out there, we're not talking about CBD oil and <laughs> ice baths and massage guns or coffee. <laughs> or coffee. <laughs> well i mean maybe we you know it does not be i mean i love coffee don't get me wrong don't get me wrong but we're talking staples like eat sleep recover stress management so i have asked all my questions i bothered you for quite a long time we've had some epic grants and i'm super excited for this one to get out this has been fantastic 
No, um, I, I love it. It goes fast and you know, I can, I can talk about this forever. So, yeah. I, and I, I also, you know, however you share or give out information, um, you know, anyone can feel free to reach out to me. That's my next question. Don't get ahead of me. Come on. You're killing me. No, it's get out of my head. So, so as we mentioned, Steph has a remote consultant company, let's call it. Yeah. Let's go with that. Sure. Um, online coaching for, uh, for ACL, um, patients. So if somebody, you know, wants more information or they want to start working with you, what, what do they do? Yeah. So you can either, um, direct message me on Instagram. I'm just stephallen.dpt, um, or email me. Notes. Yeah. Yeah. Emailing it just, um, it's Steph at the level up um, but I'm a pretty, pretty open book there. And I mostly, am, you know, somebody's considering coaching or they just want to learn more about, about what it is. Um, you know, I'm happy to, I'm happy to <laughs> hop on a call, um, and see, you know, I, I've, I've had calls with people who aren't necessarily, that actually isn't necessarily what they need right now. And they just needed to be sort of like triaged in the right direction. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm also happy, happy to do that as well. I believe you're in the Facebook group too. And so if people have questions, they want an open forum and just want to chat about these things or ask Steph anything, um, well, we have that option and, uh, it's a good option because there's probably other people with the same question that are too afraid to ask it. So sure. please ask it. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Um, if you guys have made it this far, you're troopers and uh, we really appreciate you. Penny did not make it. Oh, Penny. She, uh, gets, Pe- bored. she gets bored of me talking. Pepper dog. left, so I can't even get him sure. <laughs> they both left. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love it. Thank you for having me, Jordan. This is awesome. All right. Thanks, Steph. Take care, guys. We'll see you soon.